Thank you. Thank you. If you have your Bibles, if you could turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 24 through 29 this evening. And um, let's read the text. I have to say this. I always like to read through an entire text when I teach on it. And the reason why, years ago I was a youth pastor, and I would always do that, always read through the text. And then this one evening, I taught on this one Bible study, and I got, I got so caught up in the first part of it, I never finished the whole text. I just got in the first paragraph. The next day, a mother of my, of my students called me and said, my daughter came home so enthusiastic about that Bible study last night. She got so much out of it. And she went on and on and on. And I said to the mother, you know, my head swelling and stuff. I said to the mother, well, what was the part that she really liked? And it was the part I never got to. <laughs> and it helped me see that God's power is in his word. It's in the text. So we'll hope not to get in the way. But nevertheless, let's at least see what he has to say to each of us. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up all which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your behalf, that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God, that is, the mystery, which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints." to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And we proclaim him, and admonishing every man, and teaching every man with all wisdom, that we may present every man complete in Christ. And for this person, purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you with our hearts hungry. Life is so complex and there's so much we don't know and so much we don't understand. But I pray that we could hear from you this evening that bit that will connect with us in the places where we're living our life, that we might sense the overwhelming grace of God operational in our circumstances, and that we would see that you have called us to each moment we find ourselves because you have purposes for us to serve you in those places. That we would understand that it is Christ in us, the hope of glory. I pray, Father, too, once again, that you would take the crumbs that are offered and that your Holy Spirit would multiply them and distribute them in such a way that every person here with the uniqueness of their circumstances would hear something whereby they would say, I know God loves me because he spoke to me this evening. And I ask this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. In Colossians, we've seen so far that Paul has been linking maturing in Christ with ministry. That as we engage in ministry, there's an intimacy that we begin to experience in relationship with him as we see him working in us. So, here Paul begins this passage, though, where he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is a church, and filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. 
We read that and we kind of scratch our heads. How could he say he rejoices in suffering, first off? That's different than my experience. And second off, he even goes so far as to say his suffering is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Certainly doesn't mean that the death and resurrection of Christ were full of insufficiencies in their power to save others. And he must now step in and do what Jesus failed to accomplish. Jesus said from the cross, it is finished, tetelestai. In the Greek, it's in the perfect tense. This is done. Jesus accomplished it. He paid it all. Yet Paul says here that he has a role in filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What could he mean by that? And there's nothing lacking, I think, in the sufficiency of Christ's anointing work and his atoning work to save us. But as time passes, there are always new people who need to hear. And there's always new vistas where the message can go. To this end, Paul says, he was made a minister in verse 25. And the text would indicate each of us also has a role to play, and it's likely to include some degree of suffering. For Paul, it works something like this. In Romans chapter 15, he writes to the church at Rome, and he says, I have preached fully the gospel from Jerusalem, across Asia Minor, and into Greece. And he writes about his intention to come to Rome because he wants to preach in Italy as well. But he also says, I don't want to stop there. I want you guys to help me get to Spain. I want to go to the outer reaches of the world. I don't want anybody to not hear how much they're loved by God and how deep is his forgiveness. He was at the front end, basically a worldwide mission to reach the world. It was remarkably ambitious and Paul was all in, fully committed. I think by his model, it would be good for us to take um, an example and learn as well. At, at the Luzon Congress on World Evangelization that was at Cape Town in 2010, I had the privilege of being there, and I took 15 Wheaton College students with us. It was the largest, most diverse gathering of Christians under one roof in the history of the world. There were 100 and I think 98 countries out of the 220. 13 countries in the world represented there. And while we were there, uh, Dr. Leith Anderson, he was the president of the National Association of Evangelicals, announced that we have basically come to the day when virtually every language and people group has now heard the gospel and has some portion of scripture translated into its language. It was overwhelming. But then he went on to say, he used to think when he got to heaven, he would search out Paul, Barnabas, Peter, John Mark, and Apollos and ask, what was it like when it all got started? And he wondered if instead, when he got to heaven, they would all be gathered around as we start showing up saying, what was it like when it finally got completed and everybody had heard? Paul saw he had a role to play, and so do we. Well, the gospel has been preached worldwide. There are people in your neck of the woods that don't know Jesus yet, and you know who they are. And there's work still that needs to be done. Look what he wrote in 25 through uh, 29. Of this church, I was made a minister, according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. And that work isn't fully done yet as long as there are people in our worlds that don't yet know that they're loved by God and forgiven. 
That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifest to the saints, to us, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ, mature in Christ. And to this end, I labor striving, he says. Uh, the word for labor there in Greek is agonize. I agonize. Uh, I, I don't know about you, but I pray sometimes, and I, I just, in agony, say, Lord, I don't want this person to not be in heaven. I don't want this person not to be there. Please, Lord, open their heart. Help them to understand I get this. And for this pur purpose, I also agonize, striving according to the power which mightily works within me. So here is Paul saying these very things. Christ in you, the hope of glory, to present every man mature in Christ. Our work we do with Pauline, Christ-like zeal and hopes of seeing all in our particular corners of the world hear and respond to the good news. And suffering is likely to be part of the enterprise. Sometimes the suffering, though, we bring on ourselves. I, I was a freshman in college, and I, I wasn't a Christian when I um, went to college. But that first Sunday, I came to Christ. The guy I was rooming with was a guy I had played high school football with, and we were in a YMCA club together, and we decided since we are going to the same college, let's room together. I became a Christian, and my roommate Otto didn't. And I wanted everybody to know about Jesus. I remember it's like I became a Christian on a Sunday night. It was a Tuesday night. I saw these two guys in the dorm, and I said, you guys, I got to talk to you. There's was, was three guys in the dorm. I said, you guys got to come in. I got to tell you something. Something interesting's happened to me. And they're in there, and I said, I went to a meeting the other night. These people were so warm and accepting, and, and they told me that God loved me and that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and I just want you guys to know about it. And I didn't know what else to say after that. I shot the whole wad. And I said, but let me pray. God, please help these guys to know you. A knock on the door. As soon as I said amen, I kid you not, it was that close. And, it, you know, uh, um, Anthony Trollope says, God tempers the wind to the shorn lamb. I think God sometimes allows privileges to happen to new believers to re-encourage them in their new faith. And I think that happened to me. Knock on the door. These guys I'm sitting with, their eyes get big. I open the door. It's three Campus Crusade for Christ guys coming to follow me up. We didn't have any appointment. Their eyes get big as saucers too. And one of them took me out to see if he could, you know, fortify my presentation a little bit so it would have more content. And the other two came in and talked to two guys in the dorm and two of those guys came to Christ. Two, two days or so after I became a Christian. So I thought, this is great. I got to talk to everybody. So I started talking to everybody about Jesus on that floor, second floor of the dorm. I, I, I was sad when the day came when my roommate came and said, Jerry uh, Warren's moving into the room. I said, well, that's okay with me. I'm an extrovert. I don't mind having three of us in there. And they said, no, you're moving out. And they took all my stuff and carried it up to the third floor and dumped it in this guy's room. And I felt persecuted, right? Problem is, I was probably obnoxious. I should have thought about my roommate 
me bringing guys in the room all the time, talking to them about Jesus. Maybe he was trying to study or something like that. Sometimes we suffer, but the suffering is our own making. But nevertheless, he kicked me out of that room, put me on the third floor, and I realized I've already talked to everybody on the second floor of the dorm. I haven't talked to anybody on the third floor yet. So even with the difficulty, we begin to see suffering might be part of the enterprise, but there's still a mission to go on. And I also began to discover more about the intimacy of Christ and also began to evaluate my own life. Because if we're going to be maturing in Christ, we have to see where we might be messing up as well, I think. So what can we make of this suffering as it relates to both ministry and maturity in Christ? To present every man mature in Christ, he says. Well, last night we talked about the fact that creation implies intention. The mere fact that God creates shows that he reveals purpose. The potter throwing clay on the wheel already has in mind what she wants to make of that clay before she throws it on the wheel. God, when he created, had purpose. Well, if that's true, if creation implies intention, then we have every reason to believe that life lived in that created world, even though it's fallen, is also full of purpose. Paul puts it like this in Philippians 1.22. If I'm to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. That means every breath you draw is a synonym for God saying, you matter in this world, I want you here, you have purposes to serve. Well, if you're like me, maybe you see people who have severe dementia. They don't know who's around. Maybe you see people who are suffering or they're cat uh, comatose. How is that service for God? There, there was a poem that was written by John Milton who wrote Paradise Lost. He had gone blind. And he wrote a poem on his blindness. And it was this, they also serve who only sit and wait. Everybody has a role to serve if they have breath in their lungs. And maybe the person with dementia, maybe the person who's uh, comatose, maybe their role in a sense is to be there for the other people, to break out of the dungeon of self so that they would minister to that particular person. There are reasons for this, and Paul makes that clear. To begin to see purpose in whatever we endure enables us to make sense of our circumstances and to persevere. I think if we know that there's a reason why we're here, or we know there's a reason why we're doing something in this broken, fallen world, it helps us to look at the suffering we might endure and make sense of it. Um, it was Viktor Frankl in his book, Man's Search for Meaning. Frankl, if you don't know of him, he had become a, psycho a psychiatrist. And three years before he became a psychiatrist, uh, uh, he had gotten married. He was uh, interred in one of the uh, concentration camps in Nazi Germany. And his wife died in that camp. He observed what was going on and was trying to make sense of all that suffering. And in this book, Man's Search for Meaning, if you've never read it, I'd highly recommend it. He has this line, if there's a meaning in life, then there must be a meaning in suffering. If there's a meaning in life, then there must be a meaning in suffering. And I think this would be true for us Christians too, especially as we think of our mission in a broken, fallen world. Life is a process and suffering cannot be made sense of in a moment of time. And I want to do a little experiment. I've done it here before, but maybe you weren't here when I did it, so it's, it's worth rethinking. I want you for a moment to think of the worst thing that ever happened to you in your life. You got it? 
I want you now to think of the next worst thing that ever happened to you in your life. Now think of the next worst thing that ever happened to you in your life. Okay, now think of the next worst thing that ever happened to you in your life. Now think of the next worst thing that ever happened to you in your life. Now think of the next worst thing that ever happened to you in your life. Now think of the next worst thing that ever happened to you in your life. Some of you are smiling. I don't understand this. Is anybody still with me? I asked that question in Sudan to a group of black southern Sudanese tribal Christians, all of whom had seen relatives hacked to death by the Janjaweed. None of them got to more than 10. I asked it in Romania, teaching in underground schools when Ceausescu was the Stalinist dictator of that country. Nobody got to more than 10. But what if you got to 20 or 30? By contrast, think of this, all the good things that have ever happened to you in your life. And my guess is that list will go on and on and on. The time you were encouraged because somebody gave you a present. The time you encouraged somebody because you gave them a present. Every time you had a good meal or went to bed under a roof over your head. Every time you saw a sunrise or a sunset or you had a great conversation with a friend and your life was enriched by it. My guess is that second list goes on and on and on. The bad things that we've experienced in our life are errant brush strokes across a massive canvas of good. And if we begin to put things in that perspective, we can start to make more sense of our suffering. But go back to your list of bad things. How many of you, given time, I've got eight things on my list, how many of you, given time, have seen good come from some of the bad that you experienced? Virtually all of you have your hand up. I've seen good come from five of the bad. If you've seen good come from some of the bad given time, you have good reason to believe good could come to all of it given eternity. There's another inference we can draw from that. That means you have no good reason to say of any moment where you're experiencing difficulty, no good could ever come from this because your own experience counts against that judgment. Uh, if a person does say that, we want to give them a wide swath because they're hurting. And we want to be sensitive to that. But nevertheless, we begin to look at this. If we know there's purpose, that there's an outcome that is a positive outcome, whether it be in the development of our character so we could grow towards that Christ in you, the hope of glory, or it can go towards us being better fit for ministry and service because we've maybe grown wiser through our suffering. We've grown more empathetic through our suffering. We've maybe grown more sensitive to see the suffering of others and maybe minister to them in such a way that they would be attracted to Christ through us. There may be moments of suffering and service of Christ, but this hopeful approach should encourage us to persevere. I remember in college, um, I, you have to take this completely by faith, but I was an athlete back then. And I played football and I wrestled. 
and we had a fraternity on our campus. They didn't have national fraternities, they were all local. And our fraternity was the Orthogonian Society, and Richard Nixon was the first president of the Orthogonians, actually. I can't imagine he did what we had to do when we were pledging, but nevertheless, I sometimes think maybe he set it up. Maybe he was the one that tyrannized us. But nevertheless, I remember becoming a Christian, sharing Jesus with those guys, and sometimes I was obnoxious. And some of the guys got in the fraternity after pledging, and they said, we, we have difficulty calling you Brother Jerry, and we have no clue how you can call yourself a Christian. And the criticisms they had were accurate and true. And I realized, man, I, 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 I've got to work on this. I need to grow in my character, grow towards Christ, so that my witness will be uh, um, more robust. And so it was interesting to me that in a two-year period, I so um, wrestled with those things they had criticized me for that I was able to lead three of those guys to Christ before I graduated because they saw I was working on it. And they saw I was trying to grow. And my fraternity last year invited me back to speak to a gathering of them, 120 of them. Maybe a quarter of them were Christians at that gathering, but they wanted me to come and give my testimony of what Jesus had done in my life since I had graduated from college. God's at work in these things. You can't judge in the moment. You look beyond it, and you look beyond it, and it makes sense if we begin to see ministry purposes in these particular areas. Um, I also have to go on to say, too, that, that um, I want you to consider further why God does not give virtue as a gift. Um, it, it, it's clear uh, that we need to have character. God's not only using us to reach others for Christ, but he's also engaged in the suffering we may endure to make us more like Christ. C.S. Lewis once wrote this in Allegory of Love is the literary critical work that established his reputation as a literary critic. It's a throwaway line. He says, innocence is not goodness. He's not saying innocence is not good. Innocence is good, but it's not goodness. It's unspoiled, but it's not proven character. Innocence is not goodness. Even divine nature, even in its power, cannot make a virtue a gift. What did Lewis mean by that? Well, I think it works something like this. Let's say you have some area that you're wrestling with in your life, an area of temptation, where every time you face it, you seem to fall on your face. You know it, you're embarrassed by it, you want to get better. You see that it might be a distraction from somebody else coming to Christ. Maybe you're even quiet about whether or not Jesus can change a life and you don't want to share the gospel because you're not convinced of it yourself because of this area in your life you're wrestling with. So out of your weariness, you call together some friends. And you say, I need some brothers and sisters here. I need you to pray for me. I want to confess to you what I'm struggling with. And I want you to pray with me, and the next time I come with it, I want you to be there as a support. And so the next time, sure enough, you enlist these people, you're praying, you're very deliberate about it, and you get through it for the first time, and you see a moment of victory. A couple weeks later, you're faced with it again. You enlist those friends, and you pray, and you get through it. Next time you pray and get through it. Next time you pray and get through it. Next time you pray and stumble. But you get back up, and you list those people, and pretty soon, 
the decisions you're making and the, the energy you're putting into this prayerfully and surrounded by people to walk you through it, it becomes a habit. You're doing it without even having to be deliberate about it. Aristotle said habit is man's second nature. And once it becomes a habit, it informs your character. And I want you to know at that moment, you are better than Adam and Eve were before the fall. They were innocent, unspoiled, but you have character emerging. Now don't get cocky and think you got it under control because God is really good at widening the screen and showing us a thousand other places where we haven't even started to work yet. But nevertheless, virtue, virtue is not a gift. It's something that we take with the, with the uh, salvation we have in Christ, with that foundation, as we talked about the first, uh, our first mes uh, message Sunday morning, on that foundation, what are we building? Are we building outhouses or are we building lighthouses? And he's called us to build lighthouses. So let's go a step further. Why doesn't God just give us virtue as a gift? Why doesn't he just sprinkle it on us so that we'd be like Christ and, and give us this art, articulate nature whereby we could communicate the gospel without any problem and everybody will come to Christ? Why doesn't he just give it to us? And I think that there's a reason why we must develop that. And why this is important in maturity and in ministry. God is omnipotent. Um, but that doesn't mean he can do anything. He doesn't do nonsense. Thomas Aquinas once observed, nothing which implies a contradiction exists in the divine omnipotence. If God is love, he cannot be unloving. If God is just, he cannot be unfair. If God is immutable and unchanging, he cannot be capricious. He can be dependent upon. He is all-powerful to do that which is consistent with his nature and nothing contrary to his nature. As I said, he doesn't do nonsense. If God creates a universe to operate with certain laws and conditions, he will not violate those laws once he created them. You don't have to worry if you take on an, off on an airplane that the laws of aerodynamics that were sound when you took off are now changing while you're in the air. If that's the case, I don't ever want to fly on airplanes, and I don't even want to live under where airplanes fly. He's not like that. He creates a universe, and it operates consistently, coherently. I remember one time I was working in the garage, and I opened a cupboard, and a pipe wrench fell on the floor. And I bent down to pick up the pipe wrench. And from the time I bent down to pick it up till the time I stood up, I had forgotten I had left the cupboard door open. And I banged my head on that cupboard door. And for some of us, that's more of a liability than for others because while the Bible says God has the hairs of our head numbered, it means he knows less and less about some of us every day. <laughs> and I banged my head well, and I was bleeding, and I let God know what I thought of his universe. And then I thought, what am I really asking God to do? Do I really want cupboard doors that don't stay where you leave them? Do I want to park my car at the mall in Fresno, and when I come out, it's not there, and I find out it's in a mall in Omaha, Nebraska? No, if we have a coherent universe, there'll be times when our misunderstanding might put us at odds with it. If he gives us free will, similarly, 
We cannot expect him to give it and then also remove the consequences for our foolish acts. Do you remember the doll that came out years ago? It was a Mattel doll. It was the first doll that had a tape recorder in it and it would talk. You'd pull the ring in its neck. It was Chatty Cathy. And she'd say, hi, my name's Chatty Cathy and I love you. Did any of you ever have a Chatty Cathy doll? <sighs> I don't know how to tell you this. She didn't really love you. She was programmed to do that. We could pull the rings. She could say, hi, my name you know, is Chatty Cathy and I love you, but she was programmed. What am I asking God to do if I expect him to remove the consequences for my bad choices? Aren't I asking him also, in a sense, to take away my free will? He can't give it and take it away at the same time. You know Art up here, you see him every evening. He, he has 17 black belts in martial arts. He could reach in and pull out my heart and show it to me a beating before I die. I don't know if that's true or not. I hope it's not, but for sake of illustration. So let's say I say something stupid. I'm very capable. If you don't believe me, ask my wife. And Art hears me and he challenges me. And being insecure, I make all kinds of rationalizations and excuses. He challenges me again. I make more rationalizations and excuses. I'm getting very angry now. And when the service is over, I can't go after him. He's got those 17 black belts in martial arts. So even though I've prayed, Lord, remove evil in this world, as he goes out the door, I pick up this podium and I go to hit him over the head with it because it gives me some distance between him and me. And in that moment, God intervenes and he turns the podium into a feather. And it tickles Art in the back of the neck. And he loves to be tickled. <laughs> I'm furious. I pull out the 357 Magnum I always carry with me. And I fire two rounds at Art, and before the bullets could get very far, God slows down their speed and turns the lead into marshmallows, and they gently ricochet off of his stomach, and he pops those puppies in his mouth, and he eats them, and he's so happy about the good fortune he's experienced. I'm furious. I throw the gun at him. While it's tumbling through the air, God turns it into a sponge. He's happy because he's going to take a bath tonight, and he needs a sponge. <laughs> Finally, I just start screaming obscenities at him, and before any of that sound can hit any ears, God dissipates the sound waves, which just happened at that moment. God put a ring in my neck. If he removed the consequences of free will, then he has also removed free will. And I'm nothing more than a chatty Cathy, and God doesn't do nonsense. He cannot give virtue as a gift, but he can give his son as a means to forgiveness and building on the circumstances where we find ourselves, that by grace and by our participation in the process, virtue and Christ-likeness might emerge. There's divine goodness, too. Good is primary. Evil, the Christian understanding. Have you ever heard somebody say, oh, if we didn't have bad, we couldn't know good? That's heresy. That is heresy. Christians believe God is good. Evil is a perversion of good. You can't think of a bad banana without thinking of a good banana that goes bad. Good is primary. Evil is a perversion. Evil compares to good like bread mold compares to bread. And consequently, we can do something with bread mold as humans, can't we? Made in the image of God. 
We can make penicillin out of it. Will we at least allow God that much creativity that he can take human evil and bring good out of it, not by removing the consequence, but by working within that world where these things are operational? One of the big things he does is he deploys us to go and tell other people they could be loved by God. But we have a great example of it in Genesis 50, verse 20, where Joseph says to his brothers who mistreated him, who sold him into slavery, he said to them, you meant it for evil against me. God meant it for good. God was operating and working in those circumstances. And consequently, many reject Christianity due to the bad character of Christians. I have a friend, Rick Richardson. He's a researcher at the Billy Graham Center at Wheaton College. He's written some really good books, but right now he's doing research on Gen Z. And Gen Z doesn't want anything to do with Christianity. And by vast majorities, into the 90 percentile, many of these people that he interviews, they don't want anything to do with Christianity because of the character of the Christians in the church. But here's the thing. Rick says to them, so tell me some specific cases. Who are the specific Christians who have hurt you? And not a one of them has given one example. You know what that means? They're repeating what they've heard in the media or what they've heard other people say. If that's the case, we need to so live our lives so that if somebody said something bad about Christians, nobody would believe it because they would see that there's virtue emerging, that Christ is in us, that he's transforming us, and the church makes a difference. Um, I, 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 we did a study at the Billy Graham Center years ago, and, and we found out that something like 78% of non-believers would listen to a presentation of the gospel if, if somebody they knew initiated the conversation. And yet we found that there were only 30% of Christians, evangelicals, in the, in the year before the survey was taken, 30%, 34%, I think, who had even had a spiritual conversation with a non-believer in that last year. We're not sharing Jesus with people. And consequently, because of that, we're not hearing the criticisms of the non-believers, whereby we could learn from that, ask forgiveness, and in asking forgiveness say, I, I wouldn't want anything any Christian ever did to keep you from seeing all that Jesus did for you and how much he loves you, and how he forgave you. If we're engaging in ministry, we see mirrored back those things we need so that we can grow. And virtue can begin to emerge. And that, in our character, that validates the message we preach will be an evidence. And these are the kinds of things that Paul is writing about in this passage. So... Um, I have more I could say, but it'll take me too long. You want more? Well, let's say a word then about virtue, just about virtue. Turn with me to 2 Peter. I don't want to go too, too long. I had a professor in college who used to say, the mind can't absorb more than the seat can endure. <laughs> and I heard John, J.I. Packer, we got to know him a bit years ago, and he, 
He said the first time he ever preached, he said to the guy he was preaching for, so what should I preach about? And the guy said, preach about Jesus in about 20 minutes. <laughs> so anyway, there you go. But in 2 Peter, look what it says. This is about virtue again, about character, about the emerging of Christ in us so that it will authenticate our witness in the world. Grace and peace be multiplied to you, verse 2, 2 Peter chapter 1. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine nature have granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. We talked about it yesterday, that the image of God might reemerge in us, that God might build our character. Now, for this very reason also, he goes on to say, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. The word there in the original is the same word for virtue that Plato and Aristotle use. In the classical world, they understood what virtue was. Virtue was an integrated whole made up of courage, temperance, justice, and wisdom. In your moral excellence, knowledge. Here it's uh, epigenosco, it's intimate knowledge, and it would be akin to um, Sophia or wisdom. And in your knowledge, self-control. That's the same word that's used in the classics for temperance. And in your self-control, perseverance, same word that's used for courage. And in your perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. That's a hybrid, but I think it would work towards justice. Justice is that one feature of virtue that recognizes my moral development is linked to my responsibility to others. It's a little bit like what we've been talking about. Ministry grows as we, um, as we mature. And as we mature, we see we have a responsibility to others. I mentioned uh, the C.S. Lewis weight of glory. There are no mere mortals. There are no ordinary people. The weight of my brother's uh, glory sits on my shoulders. I have responsibility to them. So these three, um, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love, are concerned. Now look what he says in verse 8. By the way, these qualities, let me just define them for you quickly. They're habits. Uh, one temperate act. Refuse a second piece of pie one time. Doesn't make you a temperate person. They're habits. And they need to be developing and ongoing and growing. And they grow like a weightlifter lifts weights. You don't go into the weight room and throw 400 pounds on the weight. You start out with maybe 10 pounds. And you slowly build. So too with character. They're habits. Courage is a habitual ability to suffer pain and hardship. It's endurance, fortitude, and staying power. Courage is the ability to say yes to right action, even in the teeth of pain. Maybe even saying yes to sharing with your neighbor, even if there's a possibility you might get embarrassed. Don't be afraid to be embarrassed. Don't be afraid to ask for forgiveness if you overstep. But you take the courage and you might find that your neighbor was just ready to hear and the prompt that you got that you should share came from the Holy Spirit and you're participating in a bigger scheme than you ever realized. Temperance is a habitual ability to resist the enticement of the immediate pleasure in order to gain the greater though more remote good. Temperance, just as justice or, or as courage, is the ability to say yes to right action 
even in the teeth of pain. Temperance is the ability to say no to wrong action, even in the jaws of pleasure. Uh, Justice. Justice is concerned about the welfare of others around me. It secures and protects natural rights. It's fair. It renders to others their due. Sharing Christ is a just act because if this other person is due to hear of the mercy and grace of God, then we are unjust if we're not sharing when those opportunities emerge. We shouldn't feel coerced into this, but we should be sensitive if the Holy Spirit prompts. And then wisdom. Wisdom is the habit of being concerned about decisions we make. It seeks counsel and advice. It knows we're all pea brains. It knows we don't know much. And it knows we need to hear from good counselors and cultivate good relations with people so we could hear them. I, was just, I just got back from England uh, a week ago. And I was there with my brother. He just retired. Uh, and I retired. And my college roommate, we all retired. And we had set this trip up. But then COVID came. And we weren't able to go. My brother's afraid to fly. I can't believe we come from the same DNA. I love turbulence on airplanes. And, I, and, and I, uh, you pay a lot of money for that at an amusement park. You get it value added on the airplane. And not only that, you get the entertainment value of watching the people who don't like it. My brother took a ship over. And we met up over there and then traveled around for a month. But, but we, I took him to Hampton Court. I don't know if you've been to England before. It was where Henry VIII lived. And if you look tour around Hampton Court at the end of the day, about 3 o'clock, you can get on a boat, and it'll take you all the way up the Thames, three and a half hours, and you end up at Big Ben. But Hampton Court, there's a hedge maze. It's about 8, 10 feet tall. And you can go in that place and get lost. And if you get lost, what do you do? Well, you just cry for help. And the proprietor will climb up on a scaffold, and from his elevated position, he will guide you out. Wisdom is to look to the scaffold, the scriptures, and those friends who might see a little more clearly than you in your place of, of difficulty. Anyway, when these things are ours and increasing, the text says right here, if anyone lacks these qualities... He is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. He's building outhouses on the gospel message in his life rather than a lighthouse. But also, verse 8, if these qualities are yours and increasing, it's an emerging thing. It's a process. They render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. They make us useful and fruitful as we serve Christ. So Paul says, my suffering has worked out for the greater progress of the gospel. I think it works along these lines. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege of being with these people. Encourage them from these words as they go to this text later, maybe even reading it one more time before they go to bed. Let your Holy Spirit speak to them and give them exactly what you want, that they might grow in their maturity and knowledge of you, their intimacy with you, and that they might also, I pray, um, find opportunity for ministry because of that growth in their own personal life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.